and welcome to the latest Science of Sport podcast. I'm your host Matt Solomon and today I'm delighted to be joined by David Jackson. So David is a master instructor with the Oxygen Advantage working as a breathwork coach. He's a former professional rugby player and an accredited UK SCA strength and conditioning coach and it's his mission to make breathwork normal part of everybody's everyday lives. So without further ado it's time to welcome Jacko onto the show. Jacko, welcome to the Science of Sport podcast. It's a pleasure to have you back again. Uh, it's great to be great to be back or be here. But when I say here, I'm like at my house. Yeah, yeah. you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah. Back to be, back, back uh, face to face, but not face to face. Yeah, side by side, actually. So, so, yeah, yeah, yeah. On the screen. Um, how's life been since the last time we spoke to you, mate? What have you been up to? Um, yeah, I guess uh, we, we said that COVID is probably. Um, been in been and has it gone it probably hasn't gone hasn't it but it was we've, we've experienced that uh, that changed a lot of things in terms of working with athletes in the gym um i spent a bit of time i guess like a lot of people have done exploring a few different other avenues and one of those has been um the impact of, of breathing on performance and um I've, I've actually done some training with the oxygen advantage I'm, I'm now actually one of the master instructors with the oxygen advantage it's been a bit of a whirlwind in that i now you know, previously knew nothing about breathing, and then um, I'm now in a point where I, as a master instructor, I will teach the certification so people can become a certified instructor um, through me. I did all my training with with Patrick McKeon, who's the you know the guy that wrote the book and created the framework. Um, and it was a, it was a way in for or the way in for me was to do with um, seeing some research that was talking about or two things research was showing like the effect that brain injuries had on gut dysfunction and gut issues so the brain gut axis and then that led me into then some stuff around um traumatic brain injuries or any type of brain injury concussion that was um would have an effect on our breathing patterns because the respiratory center is in the middle of the brainstem in the medulla um and it all seemed to make a lot of sense to me and i was looking at things you know having i had a i had a a TBI, a, a brain injury in uh, 2013, so nearly 10 years ago at the end of, well, at the, <laughs> that ended my rugby career. I had a, had a seizure on the field um, and a small bleed on the brain and I couldn't run without getting some of my symptoms like headaches and things for, for about a year. And um, I had no idea the, how, that, how that would have affected my breathing. But when I did some of the simple um, assessments that we do with the oxygen advantage, just well documented in research of, of how we can potentially get a gauge of, of people's um, breathing, their rates of breathing, their rhythm to breathing, their sensitivity to carbon dioxide, which is one of those primary drivers of our breathing. Um, I scored very badly. Like I was in a category of um, severe asthmatic and I was like, I've never had a problem with my breathing. I've never had asthma. Like a, like what's going on not what's going on it was like i had a suspicion that my brain injury will have affected my breathing and then it basically got confirmed um and my ego had to take a bit of a hit from this idea of this thing that just you do automatically you go oh, I'm, I'm not doing it very well um but <laughs> yeah I mean, you're, you're so experienced at it right like you've not, <laughs> yeah, not breathing that, like you do it I, all the time <laughs> I started as a kid, (laughs) but it was so, but I think that the thing that was, I guess it's the, the thing that has been probably the most difficult thing. And and hopefully I don't have too many more things that are as difficult as that to get over in my life was that brain injury. It it really, when the brain is injured, like all bets are off, like nothing's, nothing's working, nothing's happening. And, And at the time, 
the advice was, um, you know, the medical advice was like, do nothing. Um, you know, just I had sensitivity to light, you know, all the classic things you have. So you literally can't, I could, you couldn't even read a book because uh, like the looking at the words would like hurt your brain um, and just be asleep alone. The, the, the advice was, um, you know, do nothing. Uh, we don't know when you're going to get better. Um, you're, you know, we can see a bleed on your brain or a scar from the breed uh, on your scan. Um, other parts of your brain look like they're okay. Uh, they don't tell you that on the level of MRI scan that you had is not as detailed as it as it can be. They, there's a there's a there's depth to them. I've recently had one. I'm waiting some results of. So you and you and you're left with this notion of like we hope you're going to get better. Um, we don't know how long it will be, and there's nothing you can do. It leaves you in a in a very strange place mentally. Um, and yeah, that was something. The reality, what I know now is that. There is something that you can do. Uh, there's probably other stuff as well, but I know there is some stuff you can do with your breathing. Your breathing will have been affected, and you can start to retrain some of those, some of those patterns, some of those uh, breathing habits. And a big thing is that the longer your poor breathing goes under the radar, the the more dysfunction you'll have around um, how sensitive those central chemoreceptors in your brainstem are. To carbon dioxide which is what it's using to to modulate your breathing because of the effect it has on um the the ph of the blood it makes our carbon dioxide gets carried as carbonic acid or 65 percent of it um in the in the blood and and that that changes um as we're minute by minute our body our brain uses that changing ph in the blood as a way to modulate your breathing and it can get into a state where the the faster and more you breathe, the more inefficient you become at breathing. The more inefficient you become at breathing, it just creates this snowball effect. And effectively, you breathe out more carbon dioxide than you need to. The amount of oxygen inside us, you put a pulse oximeter on, your blood oxygen saturations effectively, like, you know, as long as you're fit and well and healthy, like, they're full. Well, not full, they're like, it's not 100% because if, you, if your blood was 100% saturated with oxygen, it means that none of it's leaving, which would, that would be a bad thing. It's not getting to your tissue. So you're like 98, 99%, 97%, like you're almost full. You're fine. It's just, it's more to do with the levels of carbon dioxide. And um, that was a big, like, what <laughs> to me? Um, but carbon dioxide, it helps um, circulation. So it actually helps with blood flow to, to the brain. But when you're not used to having much of it in the body and you've got into poor breathing habits, and that could be, yes, a brain injury like I had. But a lot of people, it's just from like being completely unaware of their breathing, being um, being too stressed. There's some things around like our airway and it maybe you play a contact sport and you're at times. Or actually, you might just have a really narrow airway because over life, maybe you had some dentistry done when you are younger and they took teeth out because apparently you had too many teeth, which is impossible. It's just that our, our faces and jaws are getting narrow and, and all that type of stuff. Um, but essentially, if it's, if, it, if it's going sort of under the radar, which is very easy for it to do at rest. Because I'm looking at you now and it's like trying to look at your breathing and it's like, I can't really see because it's not being challenged. So then we're unaware of it. But then what happens when you start exercising? Demand for oxygen goes up. Your body creates more CO2. 
that driver for breathing is going to get challenged. And then you've given, given potentially no tools to manage your breath and no tools to be able to be more efficient with your breathing when you start exercising. And there was a study came out earlier this year, May 2022, I'll shut up in a second, <laughs> May 2022, <laughs> where they, uh, it, was a, it had lasted five years. So they started the study in 2017. It was in the Journal of Strength and Conditioning Research. And they screened nearly 2,000 people of athletic population, they were describing. So they did some form of exercise. And they were, um, they were assessing their breathing, and, uh, but only on one dimension, the mechanics of how they were breathing. But effectively, they were looking at, like, were they diaphragmatically breathing or were they upper chest breathing? And 91% of them were classified as dysfunctional breathers. And, you, and, and you're like, surely if you're exercising, you're better at breathing. But that's, and that's one study, a decent number of people, but it's only one. But, and it might not be as high as that, but it's definitely a good percentage of us. And I think one of the big things is we're totally unaware of the impact that our breathing has. We're totally dismissive of the impact our breathing has, which is just sort of ludicrous because when we exercise, you go, or if you're working with an athlete and you're training them and you're doing some anaerobic conditioning work, you're trying to improve that lactate threshold. What are you exposing their body to? Low oxygen, high CO2. And so how you breathe can influence those things and how you deal with low oxygen and higher CO2, you can train. And, and that's one of the things that, that we do and I've been doing. And it's, um, I guess it's been a, a starting point for me was to, to help with my brain health. Um, but then the other side of it has been, um, it's took me back into the world of rugby, which I'd not done an awful lot of for a while. And um, I was at a point where, I've gone, wow, this stuff is making a big difference to me and, and some of the people that I'm working with. Um, I wish I knew this when I played rugby because like, I was fit. That was my thing. And I was like, I knew none of this. The closest thing, bit of advice we got about breathing was, lads, when you're absolutely knackered, put your hands on your heads and take some big breaths in. And that's not necessarily wrong, but it's not exactly um, scientific and we can do an awful lot better. Um, and so I started, there was a, I say I finished, I retired from that brain injury nearly 10 years ago. So there were some young players when I was finishing, still playing now. Um, so I started to reach out to, to a few of them. Um, a friend of mine um, one of the, is the head physio at one of the premiership clubs. Um, and so, yeah, I, I, I'm quite lucky now to get to share some of this stuff with people who are playing um, at, uh, at the highest level. And um, it's great to be able to give them some tools to help manage their breath, help them perform better, help them recover faster, um, and also help them with their day-to-day -day breathing, which will help them with their, their stressful lives like anyone else. I think that's a, it's a really interesting insight, right? So you've gone through all of the different kind of aspects, and it's not just, oh, look, you're breathing, you can get good at it or not good at it, and you've got a lot of practice, hopefully. Um, <laughs> but like, it's not just, okay, you're good or bad, but it has genuine impact on life, health, but also sport. So yeah. um, I wanted to touch on nasal breathing and how that's yeah. different then to, to other uh, potential options, mouth breathing, probably. That's pretty much your only options. Um, but yeah. like, um, or maybe both at the same time. Well, but I found, I found out, I was, uh, I was speaking at a summit um, in London at the weekend, and one of the guys was talking about the evolution of breathing and talking about diff how different animals breathe. Turtles breathe through their arse as well. Really? 
That's so, the, I, I, I breathe from my ass, but that's only when I've been running a lot. <laughs> no, no, I think that was, you said talk through. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's why I got the podcast, right? <laughs> uh, no, you've got, you've got a few different holes in your face that you can get things in from. Like yeah, two, of, <laughs> two of the holes your brain is popping out of, they're your eyes. Um, there, then you've got two small little holes uh, that make up your nose. And then you've got that big gaping hole in your face, your mouth. Um, and there was a, um, a scientist called Cottle, I don't know what his first name was, in 1958, identified 30 different functions of the nose that the mouth doesn't have that shows it's designed for breathing. And that ultimately, the mouth is just there as like a, um, an emergency strategy um, to be used in an emergency, but then not to be used again. And then using emergency not to be so um one of the big things is that resistance that your nose provides, being much smaller in terms of the, the size of it, it provides about fifty percent more resistance than the mouth, obviously depending on how you use the mouth. There's a big difference between uh, wide panting to I can still breathe quite well in terms of creating some resistance with the mouth, and that's the type of thing that we'll t- be teaching people. Um but that resistance allows a better connection to the diaphragm. It gives your diaphragm something to pull against. When you have very little, it's very easy to do an upper chest shallow breath. Now, that's not efficient in terms of getting oxygen into the lungs, um, low down, where we've got the greatest density of alveoli in the lungs and the, and the most amount of blood because of gravity. But that helps with that oxygen delivery from the lungs into, into the blood. So, um, that's that's one of the things uh, the other bits that are really important about the nose that the, the mouth doesn't provide is like the protection the filtration system all those little hairs within the nose there's nitric oxide um, which is a gas interestingly poisonous outside of the body but within the within the body it's it's a, like people describe it as like a, a miracle gas that um is vasodilating it helps the blood vessels open up it helps um again with oxygen transfer from the lungs into into the blood um and it's also antiviral antifungal antibacterial i think it's anti anti everything so it, it it plays that alongside the filtration system in the nose is doing a very important job of like moistening the air helping to protect the airways like the moisture also helps with the oxygen delivery once it's in the actual lungs whereas a dry airway gets very inflamed it will often trigger for um, feelings of exercise-induced asthma or even literally people with asthma can make a lot of changes to their asthma symptoms and some completely relieve it by stopping mouth breathing and focusing on nasal breathing. And the interesting thing with the nose is, like any organ, it's, it's use it or lose it. So if, like me, you got into some poor breathing habits and you switch to nose breathing and you try and go out for a run, I couldn't get to the end of my road, which is like 50 meters away. And I was like, this is horrific. <laughs> I'm reading a book telling me that nasal breathing is better than mouth breathing. And I was like, no, it isn't. It's <laughs> not pouring into the mouth and all that <laughs> yeah. type of stuff. But uh, I'm, I'm very glad I was at that point where, you know, I was trying, I was doing it from a, um, a brain health perspective. I'd understood the science of people like this, Cottle and Patrick McKeon explaining why you should breathe through the nose. And it was. It allowed me to. It doesn't often happen, but it allowed me to take the ego and put it to one side, which actually is probably ego. Even describing doing able to do that, the ego is probably the ego talking itself. But you know what I mean. Basically, meaning rather than me going, I'm crap at this, therefore this must be crap. It was like I'm crap at this. That's a problem because I understand this is a very basic thing 
that basically keeps me alive and I'm not able to do it the way the body's designed to do it. That's probably a, a fair way to describe where the place I was at with it, yeah. And when you say the way it's designed to do it, um, what does what does physiologically good breathing look like then, right? So I, I imagine it's some kind of yeah. mannequin who's sat there with his chest up and like big, big yeah. breaths. But like, what, what does it look like physiologically when that happens? So um, interesting to say big breaths, not big breaths. If you've got to take big breaths, that's you being very inefficient with the breaths that you take. So physiologically, good breathing an efficient breathing would be someone that doesn't need to breathe very fast and someone that doesn't need to breathe very big with each of those breaths because their body's comfortable with um, maintaining carbon dioxide within the body, which helps with circulation, blood flow. The other thing I forgot to mention, or, forgot, or didn't get around to mentioning because I went off on some other tangents, was that carbon dioxide, it's the catalyst that allows oxygen to be released from red blood cells. But this goes back to like over 100 years. 19, a guy called Christian Bohr in 1904 it rhymes as well. I didn't realize that rhymes. Oh, Christian you, you're, you're in a roll. You're in a no, roll. Keep going. I've I'm said that. I don't, know, I don't know how many times I've said that. Christian Moore. No, so I didn't. I've never noticed that it rhymes. Christian Moore, 1904. Um, we should do a rap about breathing. Shouldn't we? Anyway, um, <laughs> you shouldn't, mate. You're, 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 all the, you're, all the, you're the guy that all the kids in school didn't like because they yeah. came in and tried to make science cool. <laughs> um, I grew my hair to try and look cool. No, um, the. Uh, that, yeah, it's cool when you when you discover something, people name it after you. So if like I'm I'm, I'm still trying to do that, but the Bohr effect is basically because this guy called Christian Bohr noted that when levels of carbon dioxide went up within the body, the pH went down, so it became more acidic, and oxygen was being released from the hemoglobin more readily, and showing that 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 carbon dioxide, that carbon dioxide is literally the catalyst that reduces the pH um, and gets oxygen to be released more readily and then the opposite happens when we become more alkali it's when you get rid of a lot of carbon dioxide oxygen stays more readily attached to um, hemoglobin and it stays in the blood and it's not being delivered to the tissues as efficiently so when we're panting <laughs> you're 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 breathing out a lot of carbon dioxide you can't get control of your breath you'll eventually recover your breathing but not as efficiently as if you were to do some of the protocols around like larger slower breaths build up your co2 tolerance um yeah to be able to to be able to actually recover not lose control of your breath so easily and also to be able to recover your breath quickly but in terms of coming back to, to the question to hitting the question head on about what does it look like it looks like slower smaller breaths it looks like in and out through the nose at rest it's silent and if you were to watch me it wouldn't look like I'm doing anything. I shouldn't need to take big breaths. When I'm exercising, yeah, I'm going to need to. My, I need to meet my breathing needs to meet my metabolic demand. But what we often get is the opposite of that. We're over-breathing. So breathing more air than my, is the metabolic demand is. And that just drives this inefficiency snowball. Whereas we want to do the opposite. Yeah. So um, when, you, when you put all those things together, like how can we – start to improve so let, let's assume that you mentioned 91 percent or nine percent earlier that people were inefficient let's assume that people listening are generally inefficient how would those people go about improving their breathing obviously yeah, to yeah. move it towards the model you've just described uh they would um they would follow my free foundational <laughs> breathing course on the Excellent. Program. No, it's, which look, is in the show notes probably cool. this is this the reality is this 
is that um, I believe, and I won't be the only person in the world that believes this, I believe that the body is designed to breathe in a, in a particular way. Like it, it literally, you look at the anatomy of it, it, you look at the functions of the nose, like Costa done, like it just shows that there's, there's not really a, much of an argument. Um, the argument of whether you want to go like, is that God or evolution? Like that's a different, that's a different argument or conversation and, and a great one to have. Um, so I believe that your body knows how to do that what we need to do is just create the environment, give ourselves a little bit of understanding to know what it is that we should be doing, what it feels like to do it, and then spend some time letting the body show you what that looks like. And if I was looking at a, a step process when I'm working with like a, a professional rugby player, for example, is we want to rugby is gonna, or sport is going to really challenge your breathing. So we want to take you away from that challenge and just work on the mechanics of your breathing and then that that uh what we would call the biochemistry but work on that that ability to be a little slower and a little more gentle or smaller work on those dimensions away from the challenge of your sport and then gradually introduce it so it might be it might literally look like practicing breathing sat down or lying down away from any challenges practicing it well and we'll, we can talk about what that then looks like and then like maybe take me onto a, a bike like a static, like a, a what bike or other bikes or a bit, a static bike where I can be in complete control of the demand, but a nice rhythmical movement. I'm stationary. I can, I've got no skill element, so I can actually focus on the skill of breathing well with a little bit more higher demand or drive of oxygen coming, uh, wanting to be higher and CO2 being more being generated. And then taking it into then my actual sport where I'm then effectively changing those habits so that when I'm in the sport and playing rugby, I'm not thinking about breathing. I've retrained that sort of autopilot. Yeah. Um, that looks like, in terms of the mechanics, it looks like a three-dimensional expansion of the rib cage. The, the angle, your lowest ribs make the sternum. We call it infrasternal angle. When we inhale, that's supposed to widen. And your ribs go all the way around to the back. So we're going to expand front to back and also side to side. So three-dimensionally expanding that rib cage. The diaphragm, which attaches to your spine, and there's two hemispheres to your diaphragm. Really interesting. We're going to real, go into the, some of the, 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 the weeds. The, because of where your heart sits on the left-hand side, um, your liver, so basically your internal organs dictate that your, the lung on the right-hand side is slightly different on the left. Yeah, your di the the right hand hemisphere of your diaphragm is slightly bigger on the right because of that, and then on the left, and the attachments are slightly different from right to left. But essentially, they're attaching down onto the spine, and then onto the rib cage, those bottom ribs, and you can literally get your fingers underneath and have a little feel and play around with it, palpate it a little bit. That's quite good for a little bit of sensory input to it. But essentially, as those ribs are widening three dimensionally, that diaphragm, the centre portion of it, is being pulled down towards the spine. And the diaphragm moves down a couple of centimeters and flattens out. So we have this like movement of the diaphragm down and flattening out on the inhale as the ribs expand. Like the ribs move and the diaphragm is pushing them like they work together. And then when we exhale, they move back up. They move the ribs come back down and in together. So we get this like extension, external rotation of the ribs on the inhale, flexion coming together and internal rotation of the ribs on the exhale. And the diaphragm sort of articulates down and out on the inhale and, and back up on the exhale at rest when our breathing's passive that exhale is literally passive it's it's it will the, the elasticity 
I think about 50%, if not more, of the diaphragm is like fascial tissues. It's very elastic. It will almost like rebound back into back into position. If your ribs are able to come down and together, what we see with a lot of people, particularly those that do like power sports, a lot of posterior chain work, will be in a lot of extension patterns. You'll see these people like extension, ribs flared, like anterior tilt. They struggle to get the ribs down and in. So what's happening where the ribs, where the diaphragm is attached to the ribs, you're almost like keeping the ribs out is keeping tension or stretch on the diaphragm. That then affects the tissues that, you know, things like psoas major, QL, they're all attaching into the diaphragm. So we get issues around the lower back, around the spine, around your rib cage. Your rib cage position will affect your shoulder blade position, spinal position and the psoas and QL, that's going to affect your pelvis. So we get like all these potential um, issues around some movement dysfunctions that not that breathing cures all things, but it might be something to look at and my experience is quite easy to address, but we need to know what it is that we're trying to do. A lot of people don't know that their ribs are supposed to come down and in on their exhale. Um, and, uh, when we start exercising, rather than it being passive exhale, you're going to have a force. There's, there's some nice, there's nice, it's, it's, an, it's an interesting field because there's, new stuff coming out as people are starting to to research it and understand it in a little bit more detail and we're starting to know which parts of the brainstem like the medulla being involved in that exhale as well as the inhale the pons control the size of the inhale that we that we take and that can influence like uh, or we can use that knowledge to influence like flexor and extensor tone when we're um, when we're trying to like warm up it might help in certain positions to create more extension or more flexion and we can do that with our breathing so there's, there's some really nice stuff that's coming out um and uh yeah it it, it works pretty fast um <laughs> how, which, how, how fast then can you expect because like, so i want to go into the yeah. fish off in just a second with like a case study as to how people can do this but like yeah what kind of what kind of results can people expect and what kind of time frame can they expect them in well, so to almost, um, what's the right word, uh, to humour uh, the modern uh, human's um, short uh, patient span, uh, there is stuff you can do immediately. But the real beauty with um, training your breathing is in the long term. And, and to do that, you need, we need to find ways, and as coaches, I believe, help people find ways to integrate different breathing practices just into their work, into their cool dance, into their day-to-day habits, so that they're consistent with whatever the protocol is that we're going to try and get them to do. And a lot of this stuff's really, really simple. Um, so that's a really important part of it, and that makes long-term changes. Yeah. Um, some a good example could be like breath holding. Yeah, so there's a lot of research done on breath holding to uh, mimic altitude training, getting the body to experience hypoxia and hypercapnia at the same time. So low oxygen, high CO2, that's what those two words mean, at the same time. Um, and there's, there's both short and long-term adaptations that take place. In the short term, when you do a strong, challenging breath hold, uh, 30 seconds or more, there's some, some nice research in the Journal of Applied Physiology, I think uh, one 2003, one in 2000. 2006 so you know it's been around a little while where in the short term the response to the low oxygen the spleen which is a blood bank holds about eight percent additional red blood cells contracts so basically like notices oxygen's low we're going to help out by releasing some more red blood cells 
that lasts anywhere from 10 minutes up to an hour, depending on the research that, that, you, that you see, which would mean some additional, you can have up to um, a 20% contraction of the spleen, which can increase red blood cell count. That this, that paper in 2013 showed, um, off the top of my head, it's something like 2.8 to 9.6% increase for up to an hour. And you're like, well, I'll have a bit of that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'll tell you yeah. that. Easy, thank you. Strongest contraction of the spleen after five challenging breath holds. So some of the work that we'll do with an athlete is in their warm-up, can we elicit some of this spleen response? And you know, like you literally do some of those, let yourself recover, give yourself a few minutes to recover, um, get your breathing under control, etc. And you will feel that you get a few percent more red blood cells. Like you feel that, and I, like I and the people I work with, you'll feel that. The long there's a, there's another effect, but it's longer term. That low oxygen, the kidneys want to help out as well, and they go, they produce um, EPO. So they they've seen after again five challenging breath holds. Um, so same effectively protocol, the kidneys um, able to produce 24% increase in EPO production, natural hormone within the body, that then nothing happens immediately other than that EPO being there, but there's a four, four, three to four day delay, something like that, and then the bone marrow are stimulated because of that increase in EPO to produce more red blood cells. So if you are consistent with it over a period of time, you can actually get this, uh, what we would call out at like simulating altitude training. Drops in blood oxygen saturation to like mid 80s, like 80 to 85%, something like that, is equivalent apparently to being at about four or 5,000 meters of altitude. Which the is great thing about, well, right? Yeah, but the beauty about doing some breath holds in your warm ups is you don't ever have to go to altitude, so it don't cost you anything. And you don't lose the effects. You don't get the deconditioning from altitude. Go to train at altitude. When you come back, eventually, I don't know after how long, but it's good, you're going to lose those adaptations. Um, so there's both short and long-term effects of that. Um, and then to, to one other thing I wanted to mention was like a really, really good, it's almost like a bit of a hack if you think of, uh, it takes our understanding of what's driving our breathing, carbon dioxide. When my breathing's getting to that state of being out of control, I go to my fast panting breath. <sighs> or, or ideally, just before I get to that point, I know, having listened to this podcast, that it's carbon dioxide driving that poor, inefficient, fast, high upper chest, vertical breathing pattern. How do I alleviate that as quickly as possible? I get rid of the additional CO2 that's built up that's causing my breathing to be out of control. You know, a strong, forceful mouth breath, we call them CO2 dumps, to dump off the extra CO2. Like, CO2 is good, but too much of it is driving you out of, out of, out of a, a good controlled breathing cycle. The caveat is, if you're always dumping off CO2 anytime you feel a bit out of breath, you're staying in that cycle of being sensitive to it. So actually, the vast majority of our training wants to be keeping it in, training the body to deal at a cellular level with increased acidity so that when it comes during competition, your body's more adapted. They've shown, there's a really nice study. There was one in 2018, one in 2017 in rugby, professional players and one in basketball with some breath holding in repeat sprintability work compared to holding with mouth breathing. There's a factor of 10 improvement for the breath hold group on their ability to do repeated sprints. And what they were seeing was the the uh, the muscle compartments themselves 
were buffering the additional acidity that was happening from holding the breath while sprinting. So you're conditioning those tissues to actually deal with. It's basically like, here's a load of acid, <laughs> and, and we're going to carry on sprinting, like, deal with that. And what the body's this just amazing thing that it goes, I don't like this, like, bloody hell, but all right, well, if you, this is what you're going to do to me, we're going to get better. And so they see in some of the, like, some of the proteins and some of the phosphates in the tissues apparently were improving their buffering capacity. Yeah, but a factor of 10. That's massive. I don't, obviously, I don't know what the study's like, but potentially it could be massive in terms of uh, a simple, easy win, right? Like, it's, it's, it doesn't it's, cost you anything. Just just yeah. don't don't breathe as much. <laughs> it's that simple. Or, yeah, yeah there, it was, I mean, that one, was, that, that one was as literally as simple as whilst you were doing some repeated sprint work, hold your breath. Um, that was as simple as that if you looked at it. But it's, um, it's, uh, if people want to have a look at that, like 2018, 2000, uh, 2020, Xavier Warons, W-O-O-R-O-N-S. If you just um, Google repeat sprint ability, breath holding, Warons, like, they'll come up. Um, but it's, it's a number, like a factor of 10, it's a number that's alarming enough to go, it's probably worth looking at. <laughs> you know, yeah, if it's it was, worth a read. <laughs> if it was 10%, I'd be still like 10%, 10%, but you'd be like, well, one study, two studies, really. Like, it's, it's not alarming enough, but a factor of 10 is a bit of a, let's have a look at that. Oh, absolutely excellent, mate. And like, when you, when you bring all this together, obviously you've, you've quoted some awesome science. There's loads of different studies you've brought together now. When you bring it together in a practical sense, how does that look like when you're going to work with an athlete? Let's say athlete comes to you like, oh, I'm not sure about my breathing. Maybe we can yeah. have a look at it. How does yeah. that process look from day one, comes in, bit of an issue, to I can improve that in my, in my sport and performance, including like a specific kind of protocol that you would use with them? Yeah. Um, so, no, great question. Um, I'm just going to give you literally everything in a everything in a one are you gonna put me out of business no, no, <laughs> no. this this is the thing now this is the thing that's important for me is like it is like your breathing is your breathing it is free and it is something that like we should be told like you know i've done some stuff with a, a charity that works in schools like primary schools because like we should be teaching like how are we not teaching people to be aware of their breathing at like why is why is maths and English more important than like your ability to control your nervous system with your breath? And anyway, um, so yeah, someone comes in, we, we, we assess their breathing. Um, we'll assess it in, in a few different dimensions in terms of like, you know, what are they like in terms of their mechanics? Are they breathing with are the ribs moving low down three dimensionally or is it, is it chest? Is it, is it vertical? So what are the dimensions of their breathing in terms of the mechanics? Um, what's their rhythm or frequency of breathing? So getting their respiratory rate on autopilot what's their what's their brain's automatic setting for the rhythm of which they're breathing so how many breaths do they take in a minute some people will wear like a, a garmin or a, a some tech um apple watch or whatever that will tell them and we can debate whether how, how good they are at detecting your respiratory rate but they might have an idea about that already um and then the other one would be what we call the auction advantage the bolt score which is a, a measure of your sensitivity to carbon dioxide building up Okay, so it's it's, a, it's we we effectively um, time in seconds. What's the natural pause in between an exhale and your next inhale? Okay, the longer that time frame is, the 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 happier your brain is, like with carbon dioxide building up. Effectively. So we get we build up then an understanding of their breathing. Um, we teach them um, the principles of like being able to connect to their diaphragm and get the rib cage moving. Um, I would give them some. 
rib mobilization exercises to get those ribs expanding more on the inhales and also importantly be able to get them down and in on the exhales to give them a greater capacity to move that rib cage which would gives them the opportunity to take larger breaths during their exercise when they need to larger slower breaths are more efficient than fast shallow breaths um we would do some breath holding uh, to get them get rid of the, the psychological discomfort of holding the breath so they can use them in their warm-ups to get those um, responses that we were talking about. And, and then there would be a teach them about the CO2 dumping and then how to regulate their breathing post-training to help shift the nervous system from the sympathetic stress that gets generated by training, which is a good stress for us to adapt, but only able to adapt once we can get into a state of parasympathetic activity so using the breath calming the breath getting control of the breath and then slowing down the exhalations are the big thing with that to get control of that and shift in in states um and then a little bit of education around like their day-to-day -day breathing habits um but that's what it would that's generally what it would look like in a nutshell so um i think, I think that's yeah. an excellent summary mate like to to go we, we've we've talked for quite a while now but all that information just to put it in a you just do it in this process i think a lot of people can can at least yeah give that a start and of course yeah, yeah they can uh, they can get on your free course uh, when they realize they need to to hit a speed bump and uh, overcome it so <laughs> look, that's uh, that's all good look for mo for most people just the fact that listening to something like this you'll just be a bit more aware of like your breathing like that makes massive change and also don't don't get too obsessed with it that don't forget that your body does know how to breathe okay it might not be doing it just because it's automatic doesn't mean it's optimal and we can do some work to that but you're not fighting against what it wants to do it might feel like that at the start but it wants to breathe well it wants to breathe efficiently and when we create the opportunities in the environment for it to do that take away some of the restrictions or bad habits that we've generated over time you're actually working with yourself and how your body wants to breathe rather than feeling like you're fighting against it you're not trying to teach it something it doesn't know how to do yeah it's like if you're trying to learn how to do a handstand you've never done a handstand before that's an uphill battle because your body doesn't know how to do it and you're not designed to, to 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 walk on your hands so you're teaching yourself something that yes we can teach it to do it and we've seen that there's plenty look plenty doable but it you're you're not you're fighting against your natural um uh, intuition whereas teaching yourself to stand on your feet it's like that's what they were designed to do so with the breathing it's it's a little bit like that you're not fighting against yourself you're you're setting yourself up to do what it wants to do oh, jack i think that's some excellent advice so massive thanks for your time and effort today i really appreciate it and okay. um i look forward to speaking again soon but before we wrap up where can people find you and where can you uh they get some more information about you um you can't find me on twitter anymore no i'm joking isn't I, I, I don't really go on twitter but uh hearing about um as uh elon musk caused some problems with twitter I <laughs> yeah. I don't know. i've still seen um, it in the news but I, I, again yeah. i don't use it that much either so twitter so 2018 isn't it um in, uh, probably instagram is the easiest place um to find me so my instagram handle is jacko.david.jackson so jacko.david.jackson uh on the gram um and then you can see all the what's going on uh, in there, or you just hit me up on it, hit me in a DM, and um, I'd love to hear what anyone thinks of the podcast. Um, and if you've got any any questions after what we've said, or even like even better still, like 
going, what? It didn't make sense. Like, or challenge, oh, I don't think that's true. Like, chat, like, and uh, yeah, have a look at some of those research papers that we mentioned. Um, if you're really wanting to dig into reason, I'd, I'd love to, to chat about some of those things if people are keen. Perfect. Thank you very much, mate. It's been a pleasure talking and I look forward to speaking again soon. Cool. Thanks, man. Cheers, buddy. And that's it once again. A massive thanks to Jacko for all of his hard work on today's podcast. I really appreciate it and I'm sure you do at home too. Before you leave, I want to point you in the direction of the Coach Academy. Now, the Coach Academy is a series of lectures broken down into bite-sized chunks. So if you enjoyed today's podcast and you want to get some more great sports science information, you can hit the link in the show notes and get into the Coach Academy completely for free for the next seven days. So hit that link in just a few seconds time. And of course, if you have enjoyed today's podcast, it would be fantastic if you could recommend it to a coach, a colleague, an athlete, or a friend. That means we can keep bringing the best possible guests and the best possible content. And that's it. Once again, a massive thanks from me. I'm Matt Solomon for Science of Sport, and I'll speak to you next week.